0: Welcome to the Trauma Resonance Resilience podcast. And my name's Lisa Cherry, and that's a very loud motorbike just gone by. Um, And I am your host. And as always, very excited about who we have on the podcast today. Um, So, where do I start? First of all, this person is part-time academic at the Open University but also heavily involved in um, Hackney Quest, youth work, he's a youth and community worker. Um, Really, this podcast follows on really nicely from the podcast that I had on last um, with Kieran and his book Cut Short. So my suggestion would be if you're really into this podcast, please go back one and have a listen to that too. Um, So, yeah, God, let's just get going. Welcome, Luke Billingham.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: So good to have you here. And it's really interesting because I didn't mean to do two youth work podcasts back to back, because, of course, why would you? You know, we like to have a little bit of variety. You know, uh, you had pasta for lunch, I had salmon. We like to, you know, kind of move things around a little bit. But I spotted something on Twitter and I thought, oh, my, we're going to have to get Luke on the podcast. And what happened basically was the release of your paper, The Terrifying Abyss of Insignificance, Marginalisation, Mattering, and Violence Between Young People. And my particular interest in you looking at mattering, and I was speaking yesterday, and I said, you've got to go and look at this paper. There was loads of uh, Violence Reduction Unit people there, and I was telling them, they've got to go and look at this paper, because I have a particular interest in belonging. And you'll have seen that my interest in belonging is thinking about mattering and safety. Mm -hmm. If we get those right, we actually can cultivate a sense of belonging. Um, The title's fantastic, but your kind of general hypothesis for this paper is that violence is hard. It's not something easy. And that mattering is a lens for understanding violence so how did you get to that place
1: um firstly just to add to what you're saying at the start um as kind of justificatory note for having two youth work things in a row kieran's a mate and a legend so i think it's good that you chatted to kieran as well as me just to add further uh rationale to that um i mean i i came to mattering because because of working directly with young people for my whole career um and then related to academic interests and kind of background in sociology, politics, psychology. And obviously what what is of interest when you're working directly with young people is what drives them, their motivational drivers, what makes them make the choices that they do, what kind of reverberates inside them that energizes the things that, that they do. Um, and. Another concern has been that the ways in which violence is described as if it's some kind of um, property, inherent property of youth or young people are violent, or as if it's a kind of self-generated um, malevolent instinct among young people or certain kinds of young people. Obviously, a lot of the um, portrayals of violence are heavily racist in their connotations. And so they have a certain image of a certain young person who is somehow born violent or naturally violent and so i think there's there's a interminable um discussion um, and debate about the, the drivers of young people's decisions and of people's decisions in general what, what is it that makes people do what they do um and around young people the most contentious issue among many others um is the violence that occurs between them um and so there's an interest in understanding those motivational drivers and then there's interest generally speaking, more, more in kind of challenging the lenses through which violence is currently viewed than suggesting that I have some unique level of insight or, or that my lens is somehow completely superior to all others. is more suggesting that there's a lot of ways that I think violence is looked at that can be distorting or stigmatising or patronising um, or otherwise diminishing the, the, the dignity of young people as well as being just generally unhelpful. Um, And I think the idea of mattering is helpful because what it draws together is the internal complexity of young people. Every young person is internally complex. Every young person's grappling with who they are. Every young person's grappling with social questions, existential questions, psychological tensions. But also every young person is heavily influenced by the world around them, by their experiences in home, by their experiences in school, by their position in the political economy, by the nature of globalized capitalism etc and i think we, we do young people a disservice if we describe them as if they, their actions are just a product of internal drives but we also do them a disservice if we don't recognize the extent to which they're influenced by the world around them and that's why i think mattering can be helpful because it's it's all about how young people and, and people in general establish a sense of their presence a sense of their significance in the world which relates both to their perceived significance to others, so respect, status, sense of belonging, kind of the feeling that you're an important part of the social world, an important part of the the world of humans, but then also a sense of potency, a sense of agency, a sense that your existence makes a difference, that you leave a mark on the world. So it's a kind of recognition and impact, and the two of them are closely entwined. Um, and so I, I, was, I was interested in that from my, from my youth work experience. So I was interested in that academically, um, read a lot more about it, um, different kinds of research as well, eth- ethnographic research deep in particular communities, more quantitative studies looking at kind of risk factors affecting violence, but then also community research and, and the ideas put forward by people like Kieran um, and other youth, youth workers, professionals working on the ground directly with young people. Um, and all, all of that fed into the paper and fed into the the way in which I I think about and talk about um, mattering and the lives of young people.
0: It's really interesting because I think when you're thinking about those lenses around violence that you were describing that are currently used, it's a really complex space, isn't it? Because alongside those lenses, we also have thinking about adversity and trauma and the conclusions that some people... Arrive at that really don't help and are not really based on reality are the stuff that's about shaming parents. And I think parents are really left behind in a lot of these conversations because if we as soon as we start talking about adversity and trauma as a way of understanding something, then then the the lens then shifts to then there must be something that's going on at home, there must be something to do with the parents. Um, And that then creates a a secondary lens that also serves to locate the problem away from the social structures around those young people. And I I was thinking a lot about that. Um, I'm sure you've got lots to say on that with a sociology head on, but um, (laughs) I was thinking about the pandemic. I've spoken to both of my kids about this a lot. They're 23 and 25 now. If they had been... 14 and 16 because of the interesting young people that they are should we say I would not have been able to keep them in the house their vulnerability would have been phenomenal and what's the you know what would have been the lens through which that was viewed and I think they certainly accept that that's the case so talk to me a bit about how we how we can be uh, more uh, thoughtful and helpful about parents and not tapping into this individualization uh, narrative. I think
1: um, there's a really, really helpful phrase. Um, a guy called Joe Cottrell Boyce coined, coined it um, in an article that I read um and he said that there's a there's a problem in discussions about violence and other social problems um which is the, the desperation to seek bounded receptacles for blame mm. so you you isolate a particular thing you pretend like it's not influenced by anything else and then you blame that so it's all gangs it's all youth culture or or too often it's black youth culture or it's all families it's all absent fathers it's all
0: Single
1: mothers, single, single mothers, and and there's excellent historical research about the culture of parent blame um, in this country and how how far back it goes and how deep rooted rooted it is. And it, it mm. you, you see it in kind of Henry Mayhew and Charles Booth. You you see it in kind of how how poverty was described in in the nineteenth um, century. Um, again, as if it was this kind of self generated degeneracy or dysfunction, which was the product of immoral parents and there was this kind of immorality that was just kind of being bred and so there were these what what in more common parlance might be described troubled families as if everything is self-generated within there um and certainly obviously the troubled families rhetoric um accelerated or, or really burst forth after the 20, 2011 riots and certainly families and and again single mothers were key targets of that notion that there was there were these bounded receptacles for for blame. I think what what I find helpful and what's really important is to think about when we think about adversity and when we think about trauma, is to think about both interpersonal and structural kinds of harm. So when I think about young people that I work with, when I think about the young people who I'm most concerned about, um, they're young people who've experienced both interpersonal harm from an early age of different kinds um, which may be within the household maybe beyond the household and then structural forms of harm throughout their life so that that might be um, forms of harm that relate to their class or their race or their gender or their kind of the identity structures um, of their life or it might be structures in terms of systems services institutions and the young people are worried about most of those who've experienced harm from other people um, of different kinds, be, be it physical, emotional, whatever. But then also they've been disrespected, diminished, denigrated within significant institutions of their life. Um, and and a f- and a phrase that um, I find helpful is is the idea of structural belittling. Um, mm. Because when when wow. when we think when we think about mattering, the, the, the analogy of size is helpful. Because I think w- what. If you if you feel like you don't matter, that's a pro- that's generally a product of interactions you've had with people or structures which are which are crushing, which are diminishing, which are belittling, and and in the literature and in the parlance that that goes alongside detailed work on violence, often there's this analogy of size of of the the willed self-aggrandizement of men. I'm a big man. He he's he's the big man, and all of the insults are diminishing. It's all like you little you little what, you. whatever and so there's this desperate desperation to uh, like assert oneself over others and a terror of being diminished and i think that's why it's an incendiary experience a a harmful incendiary experience to consistently feel like you're very little or you're nothing and and that can come in households that can come from family experiences of course but that can come from interactions with police. That can come from an experience of the educational system, which um, amounts to a series of disrespects rather than um, opportunities or or or, or 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 enhancements.
0: And it starts so early in education, doesn't it? I mean, there's a we've we kind of had a, a real kind of movement into much more. And, you know, some people are very heavily into this journey, much more restorative, much more uh, trauma informed, much more centralizing safety and understanding child development. And we had that. And I'm noticing and I'm and I move around all the local authorities in the country. I'm noticing a move back that people are not staying the course necessarily with that way because it's slow and because it's hard. And so they're moving back into more punitive and behaviorist models, which unfortunately, through the lens of mattering, that starts very, very young. If you start, you know, some of the models that I've seen around classrooms and that are being used are very much about humiliation and shame. Even if we're using something like a cloud system, if you're not careful, you're going to end up On that, on the cloud, you're going to be put on the cloud. You're going to be moving out of whatever it is, this other spell. I mean, there's so many variations of this. So that kind of belittling, which is really interesting, uh, and some lenses might call it shaming. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are different ways we can look at that. But through your lens, I think that starts very, very young. So if that is starting very, very young against the backdrop of this this uh, the other structural um and perhaps interpersonal belittling that you're looking at then we have got a we've got a ticking time bomb then haven't we
1: yeah and 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 i think um we, we do a pretty awful job in this country at supporting the early years i think i think that's mm-hmm. that's pretty fair to say i think um the, the cost of child care, the, the decimation of children's center provision and so on. Like, every, every family when I've got a seven month old baby. So I'm very aware that every family, however, like there's all kinds of different privileges that I've got. There's all kinds of different ways in which I'm fortunate. My mum's a neonatal nurse. So I can like send her photos of things and be like, does this look <laughs> normal? Exactly. Like, the, <laughs> the, the, the support around me is relatively immense compared to a lot of other families, but it's immensely difficult, and we've benefited a lot from a children's centre, which has a brilliant person in it who really cares, gets to know every family, support supports my partner and I through all kinds of difficulty, and it, then the and the kind of relational warmth that she conveys is substantial. It's not a program. It's 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 not a kind of manualized provision is a person who really cares and really knows us and, and can link us with different kinds of services mm-hmm. so, that's, so i think the early years component of what, what you're describing is really important so pr- prior to experiences with um formal education w- we're very bad at, at at the stage before that and then certainly what you're describing in schools, I, th- I think it's incredibly complex. I think there's a massively polarised debate in education in this country, wh- which is which seems fairly toxic, where on the one hand, you have to be about high expectations, which is the vaguest term I've ever come across, um, or you're kind of just lovely and cuddly. And there's this ridiculous false dichotomy between either you care about educational and intellectual development, or you care about mental health as, as, as if you can't do both or as if or or as if the, the, the quite literally the job of a school and the job of education is to do both is to support every individual to intellectually develop as much as possible but recognizing that that may need to require different approaches and that has to require a degree of social and emotional learning as well and and i think there's various different reasons why in various places in different ways punitiveness is seemingly on the rise part of it is governmental part of it is the the signals coming out of dfe the multi-academy trusts that get the most support from the DfE and so on. Um, but part of it as well is time and is working conditions. The working conditions for educational staff are awful.
0: Mm. But and, I would and, also add, it's cultural. There is you know, a cultural hangover. In the same way as you you described around parents, there's that cultural hangover about children being bad and actually needing to be controlled and managed and punished when they get something wrong. And so we've got that double whammy, haven't we, of this kind of cultural history of blame and shame and um, how we think about families and particularly certain types of families. So working class families, poor families, single parents. um, And then also how we have traditionally thought of children.
1: Yeah, and, and and I think there's the uh, a phrase I find helpful is just there's a big difference between thinking about a young person as a puzzle and thinking about a young person as a problem. Um, and I think, as you say, there's there's a long culture of treating certain kinds of people as a problem, as as inherently problematic and in need of management or control or, in some cases, kind of institutionalization and kind of individualizing different kinds of social problems and and wanting to disappear away certain kinds of people that are problematic as opposed to wrestling with the puzzles that their behavior presents and and that's usually to do with factors that relate to the the nature of society or, or or to their family or at least to factors beyond them as an individual and i think it i think it takes a lot of bravery a lot of time and the right cultural environment within a school or within a youth center within any place to, to wrestle with the puzzles that different kinds of behaviour and different kinds of attitude or different kinds of words that young people use present. And I think in all kinds of different ways, there's not conducive conditions for wrestling with the puzzles that different children and young people present, partly cultural, partly work working conditions, partly those kind of s- systems that may be popular in schools. Um, and again, the kind of false dichotomies between like the ideas of routine and structure and boundaries, which we know every child and young person needs and benefits from, but then treating that in a super simplistic way as if it's inherently the solution, ignoring relationships, or, or just a really simplistically rigid notion of what, what structure consists of. And again, as you say, the kind of long-term, the long-term cultural roots of that are often tied to, to the idea of, education as civilization. education is taking inherently chaotic um, populations and civilising them. Um, and and the, the history of compulsory education in this country is really interesting. And part of it is, is, is emancipatory ideals about supporting working-class communities to develop. But part of it is quite a kind of coercive notion that we need to get all these potentially troublesome um, little kids institutionalised in order to, to straighten them out. Um, and I think I think as a country we 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 wrestle with these different um, almost streams of thought that have gone into our education system, mm. um, and and too often the kind of coercive punitive one holds sway, and that has a lot to do with the nature of the of, of the class system in this country and, and and the history of that and the role that compulsory education was deemed to play in relation to the class system.
0: Yeah, let's move let's move on to mattering. So when I'm thinking about mattering i um i might i might ask people to consider how do you know that you matter mm. how do you know that you matter how do i know that i matter you know what does that look like and um how do you create mattering and i'm doing this obviously in a slightly different context because i'm thinking about belonging but i was wondering what questions do you ask to help people really think about and consider what it means to matter? How do, how do you break that down? How do you get people to really connect with that?
1: I think, first of all, I don't know if anyone knows that they matter. I think, I think everyone hopes that they matter and have different um, sources of certainty or, or precariousness in, in their sense about whether or not they matter or the extent to which they matter um i think with with young people it comes to trying to think through the obviously not necessarily these terms but the social ecology of their lives so the the different people and the different institutions that make up their universe and the extent to which their relationships of care and the extent to which they have an influence in these different fields and the extent to which they're, they're nurturing different kinds of competence, different kinds of ability, because everyone wants to feel like they're recognized, respected, appreciated by others. And that could be friends, that could be family members, that could be trusted adults in school, for instance. But everyone also wants to feel like they've, they've, they've got ways of influence in the world. And often that comes down in young people to a kind of ability. If, if you're fantastic at football, or fantastic at art, that all comes down to the way in which you're kind of manipulating the world to your ends in a way that leads you to achieve something very impressive. Um, so these conversations about relationships and kind of social groupings that young people are in and, and and where they have that sense that people know who they are people kind of rely on them to an extent that they're, they're they're held in mind. I think the phrase being being held in mind is really helpful and then ways in which they have an influence or ways in which they're 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 changing things in some kind of way or exhibiting a kind of competence, a kind of influence on the world and then the two almost always come together so for, often for for a young person not always but often the the extra extra familial the outside of the family relationship that makes the most difference is where the two come together where they've got a trusted relationship with a person who knows them cares about them holds them in mind but that also recognizes or nurtures a kind of ability a kind of capacity or a kind of influence in the world so that might be a young person i'm thinking of his art teacher is both someone who knows him deeply, cares about him, who he knows cares about him, but it's also somebody who's helping him develop this craft, this capacity, this this way of interacting with the world that goes way beyond anything other that I'm capable of. Or it could be a sports coach, or it could be, again, some young people I know and some of the kind of people that they work with. It's more political. It's, it's a young person navigating the kind of political agency they might have, their ability to tackle different kinds of injustice. And they've got a person who's helping them through that. So they're recognised, respected, appreciated by this individual, but they're also exploring the ways in which the world doesn't have to be this utterly impermeable thing, this kind of crushing thing, which presses down on them. It could be something that they have a degree of influence over. and And in some cases, that's a kind of inherently political thing. And so young people develop a sense of mattering in a, in a political sense. They can influence the world in, in terms of politics, um, but they've also got that, that, that relationship, and, and relationships are obviously always going to be at the core of any individual sense that they matter.
0: I think what's really interesting there is that you're bringing to the fore agency and the opportunity to have some influence over the world we're living in. And I would say that actually... That's probably one of the toughest things for young people um, in the current way that they are living, the world that they are living in, which is one where you have um, uh, work that's not uh, regular, you mm. have no opportunity to buy a house, you are, you know, they don't even think in those terms, yeah. young people. And so, what I sense when I speak to anybody under 25, is, well, you know, that's not for me. I can't change that. What's the point? Environmental harm. I mean, environmental harm is huge. And I've heard many young people talk about hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And also, which which comes with a kind of, what's the point? Because it's all going to be destroyed soon anyway. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, there's, there's just, it's so intense. I mean, just being part of that, that generation, that group of young people trying to navigate early adulthood, the pandemic really impacting upon uh, some of the transitions they would normally take, like passing a driving test or uh, going on holiday for the first time or those kind of things that tell you that you're an adult, Mm -hmm. um, they've also been impacted. And so I'm thinking that actually a lot of young people who might 10, we could say 12 years ago, might not have had those views and ways of looking at the world, that there's more of those young people and young adults now that are impacted by those external factors, Mm -hmm. even with the buffer of some of the privileges that you talked about. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and and I know what... and another thing that frustrates me when we talk about young people's mental health is the way in which it can ignore structural and political factors, as, as if like a young, a, a young person's life is completely fine or every aspect of their life is irrelevant until they pick up a mobile phone and then they're thing, seeing things on social media. And then that is, again, another kind of bounded receptacle for blame. It's all Instagram's fault that young people have a mental health crisis. What about the world of work? what about housing? What about the the fundamental building blocks of a life that feels to any extent secure and reliable? And if if your housing situation has always been temporary and precarious, and that's all you see for yourself in the future, and you've seen a parent or parents have only insecure, precarious, difficult, exploitative forms of work, and that's what it feels like you're headed towards, Mm -hmm. then many of the things which is especially policymakers, utterly take for granted as the, as the the building block of a dignified, secure life are, are just not there. And and I think another fra- phrase I find helpful is talking about the, the, the socio-historical predicament that young people are in. As in, not all young people in all different generations are, are in the same situation, obviously. It's, it's it's the history of the time and then the, the more immediate socio-economic circumstance that they're in, which you have to understand if if you're to get a sense of what's affecting their life what's shaping their life mm. and as you describe right now it's a hideously unequal society w- with a kind of myth of meritocracy that that ludicrously seems to linger on and so if 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 you're not successful in obtaining power and wealth or you feel like your your family hasn't been successful in that it's inherently shaming it's inherently humiliating and it's a phrase jock young talks about how in, that, in our kind of society, poverty is never just material scarcity. It's always a kind of structural humiliation. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just completely agree about the difficulty of all of that. What, what I see young people do successfully is kind of, in all of that, in, in, in the bewilderment of the nature of the, of the world, stuff like environmental crisis or, or even kind of globalisation broadly can make you feel so small and can make the world feel so impervious to your influence you're a tiny little dot in the world that that is never been more connected but never feels more crushing and then on top of that the planet it feels like it's it's struggling it, that sounds that sounds ridiculously glib but but you know what i mean but what what i see young people do is is carve out spheres carve out places carve out areas of their life in which they're recognised and respected and in which they can have an influence. And I think the best kinds of school, the best kind of youth centres, the best kind of sports organisations, the best kind of religious institutions are these communities in which young people feel that they're respected, recognised, that there's a ethic of care shot through it, there's unconditional positive regard. And there's also opportunities for young people to develop agency in whatever kinds of ways that they might be interested in um whether that's sporting whether that's artistic whether that's a different kind of creativity um or or whether it, that is a, a kind of politics and and certainly I get a lot of hope from seeing the ways in which the generations below me think about injustice and um and inequality because I think I'm 30 now so I drew, grew up in a kind of blairite quite somewhat apolitical somewhat kind of cool britannia kind of nonsense um Whereas now I think young people are, are, are seeing the degree of injustice in the world and they don't want to tolerate it and they want to change it. And And I think for some young people that they are able to feel a sense of agency almost as a generation that they want to and need to change things. Um, I think it's incredibly hard to maintain that hope that they can change things often because of the circumstances they're in. But I, I I can think of easily 10, 20 young people immediately in my mind between the age of 18 to 30, who are doing brilliant things to change things positively, who have this sense that they, they can influence things and they've had enough experiences, maybe quite small ones, of achieving some influence or exercising some degree of agency that's galvanized this sense that I as an individual and we as a generation can positively change things. Um it's one, yeah, it's one of the most rewarding. F- parts of the kind of work that i do
0: i think because i was going to ask you what your manifesto for mattering might be but i think you've answered it and i think you know maybe that's something that everyone can take from the podcast really is you know what would be your manifesto for belonging in your setting what would be your manifesto for safety for creating and centralizing safety which is actually key to absolutely everything and what would be your motto for um, for mattering? You know, uh, your manifesto for mattering. And I think, as 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 team meetings go, as CPD goes, as supervision session goes, as twilight sessions go, inset twilights, whatever. Those would be really useful discussions for people thinking about safety, mattering. And belonging uh, to cultivate uh, everything that you've been talking about, Luke, around um, agency, having influence over, and harnessing the strengths that each young person brings into those spaces. Do you have any final words?
1: Um, there's all kinds of different final words that I could offer. I think. I think. Um. In in the I guess I should probably plug the book that me and Kira written. So me and Kira. Oh God, you've got
0: to the, plug the, the book. The, Absolutely. The, <laughs> the paper
1: that the paper that you mentioned, me and Kira wrote a while back. It's, it's been out a little while, but um, Des Holmes, who's a lovely legend in it, and a big cheese in social work and um, research and practice director, just like put it out again very kindly. Um, but the the book is out in October called Against You Violence. Um, and one of the things we say about we say in there in the kind of blueprint for the future recommendations is that we need a, a better more equitable distribution of the four Rs
0: yeah
1: recognition resources risk and retribution because everything that i'm talking about ultimately comes down to the fact that recognition and respect are, are very unequally distributed and a lot of people feel deeply disrespected kind of interpersonally and structurally throughout their lives resources obviously the degree of inequality in the country is ludicrous and can't be justified by any political philosophy or any kind of economic model is utterly dysfunctional, the degree of inequality that we have. Risk, because the way in which our society is structured means that risk of harm is concentrated in certain communities and in, in certain households. And then retribution in the sense that state retribution, criminal justice responses, come down heavily generally on those who are most disadvantaged by those other three factors. And so there's a kind of a toxic combination in some communities where there's a real lack of societal respect. There's a lack of resources. There's, there's far too much risk. And then there's a heavy handed state retribution upon those places. Um, and, and those are the things on a kind of macro political scale, which need to be more equit- equitably distributed if we're to have hope of improving young people's lives. Um, and that's what we always talk about in the book and in general if, if we're to reduce violence between young people, we need to improve young people's lives. That's that's the way that we need to see it and take responsibility as adults to improve the, the life that young people can live in our world.
0: Luke, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been fabulous. I hope everyone has thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and I will make sure that the show notes have a um, link to your book as well. So thanks, Luke.
1: Thank you very much.